listen, heal. I'm your host, Madison. This is our fourth episode featuring Mr. John Brazel. Mr. Brazel is a Marine veteran who made his way up to Charleston from Savannah, Georgia. In his story, he takes us through his life's journey from his time as a kid growing up in Miami all the way up until what brought him here today. My favorite thing about Mr. Brazel is that on a nice day, you can always find him sitting outside in the sun reading a book. He is an excellent storyteller, and I am so thankful that he was willing to share his story with me and with all of you. Thanks for listening. John Brazel, and uh, I was born in Pasagoula, Mississippi, and I don't know much about Mississippi, so whenever I say I'm my hometown, I'm talking about Miami because we only lived in Mississippi for my first year of life, and uh, the man I'm going to introduce later on in the in my chat will be a man called Bobby Nelson, and he came into my life, it was about the eighth or ninth grade. That's who I'll be considering as my dad as we go throughout this chat. Um, my earliest memories probably were, my earliest memory was when I was in elementary school in kindergarten and I won the Junior Prince um, title of Mr. Kindergarten, Mr. Junior Prince, and the princess was a girl named Shirley. I can't, and I forgot her last name now, so but anyway. Other than that, just had fun, just you know, playing after school and playing with my friends and all that, and playing different sports that I were in at the time, and just going to different kinds of parties and things like that in elementary school. Um, well, later on in elementary school, probably around the fifth or sixth grade, kind of started getting interested in in girls and everything, and my dad, I started talking to him and. He was trying to tell me things. Well, at first I started talking to my older brother, my oldest brother, and um, the advice he was giving me was, <laughs> wasn't working out too well. <laughs> so I started talking to my dad about it, and he gave me more advice. And there was this one girl in particular that I was growing up with. Her name was Jackie Nelson, which turned out to be his second cousin, my dad's second cousin. And um, so he gave me some advice with her, and me and her, we started kind of, I guess, dating or fooling around with each other and all of that. So, and uh, that went out, went on throughout probably about the eighth grade until my some of my athletic ability started catching up with my physical ability, my physical body, and I started getting interested in other girls and you know, still hanging out with the fellas and going to basketball and football practices and stuff like that, going swimming, going to the beach. And uh, so we started meeting different girls along the way. And so me and Jackie kind of just, we stayed friends over throughout the years, and but we didn't have, never had anything develop into anything serious. So, and uh, so we just started going out and there was this girl named, uh, Maria, first girl I really took home to meet my mom, which we have something to talk about her later on also. But uh, Maria, I took her home and mom kind of liked her a little. So, and, uh, so everything worked out with her all the way going up and through high school and everything. And so, you know, in high school was 
you know, kind of really fun and, you know, doing a lot of things that teenagers start doing and going out to different types of party and experiment with marijuana and things like that. So nothing ever more harsh than marijuana, as probably most young men did back then, teenagers, we would go out and get the older boys to get us, buy us beer or wine or something like that. But other than that, we didn't do anything. Just going around and we would just, just still have fun and just playing basketball and everything. But about the time around my, when my 10th or 11th grade, grade in high school, um, my dad got shot and killed while um, playing gambling in a in a dice game and uh so that kind of hurt a little bit and uh that anger kind of still kept bottled up and my football coach wouldn't let me practice with the team and I didn't understand that at the time but he would let me go out there and hit the tackling dummy and the tackling sled and things like that and work out my aggression and just so happened that Friday night that we had the game and um I had one of the best games of that I ever had in you know in my life of, of any sport that I ever played. That was one of the best games that I had that night. And uh I got out a lot of all my pent up anger and aggression and I was, you know, finally able to hit someone and you know <laughs> and it kind of felt good to release all of that anger and, and everything. So and so we went on from there and moved on and you know, and my mom, as always, she she encouraged us to, she would never come to any of the football games because she didn't like football. But she would come to all our, most of our home basketball games and she would come to those because she enjoyed that sport. And she said there was less likelihood of, you know, us getting hurt and she didn't want to see one of her boys get hurt. So she would come to the basketball games and all of that. And she kept us in church and she was very, very, very strict on that. So that was one thing that you had to do on Sundays and before you could go out and play after church or anything. So you had to do that. So then, you know, you know, life goes on and got into 12th grade and graduation and me and Maria, we had broken up and, you know, everybody thought we were going to be together and they tried to get me involved with other girls at the time, but you know, I, I wasn't really into it and all of that. So we had career day come up on in senior as I, as seniors. And at that time, I didn't really know what I wanted to be. And I, did, I knew I didn't want to go to college and I didn't want to follow behind my two older brothers and go into the uh, Navy. And I knew I wasn't going to the army and the Air Force was definitely out of question because I didn't like to fly, and I thought that's what the Air Force was all about. And I just happened to see this guy standing there in a Marine Corps uniform, and I just knew that that's what I wanted to be. And so I talked to him, and he said, well, we had to get parental consent. And, you know, so he took me, by, took me home that day, and he talked to my mom, and she had to sign a consent form because I was under the age of 18 at the time. And so she signed that for me to go in into the Marines. And I spent that summer, one of my, you know, the last summer that I spent at home before I went into boot camp to the Marines at Paris Island and got introduced to these things called sand nets, <laughs> which of anybody from down here in South Carolina area, Georgia, and all of this down here, you all probably know about saying that. But those of you that don't, they are very irritating little, tiny little bugs. Very annoying. <laughs> Much worse than mosquitoes. So boot camp was, you know, it was very tough, very hard. But, you know, being in the physical, the physical demanding wasn't so hard on me because I was in physical shape. But the mental strain on it was, you know, that was a whole nother thing. They had to break you down from thinking, you know, that you had your mom and dad and doing everything for you all those years you were growing up and 
you had to learn how to live on your own and everything. And you know, waking up at first at five o'clock in the morning, that was real difficult because I had never had to do that before. So, but that those three months came and went, and graduation day was very good, very good. And I got home on leave and was waiting for the 10 days there to, you know, enjoy my friends I haven't seen in three months now and getting back, trying to get back to some kind of normalcy until it was time to go back to school in that, up in uh, North Carolina at Camp Johnson outside of Camp Lejeune. And um, so that was pretty eventful and the first time I got to deal with what I would call at the time cold weather <laughs> coming from Miami so I didn't know really know what cold weather was until then at least I thought I didn't know what cold weather was until then but that's later on in the story too and um so after school and I got stationed out at Camp Pendleton at uh headquarters service company 37 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, and um, we did a couple of tours over in Japan, a couple of six-month tours over in Japan, and we went to mainland Japan, and one in the Philippines while I was there then, and those were very eventful. Got to see a couple of different cultures, meet different women, and, you know, we would come back after the six month deployments and we would, you know, be still be stationed there at California at Camp Camp Pendleton. And we we'd make the pilgrimage, a couple of you know, my buddies that I came across and we'd make the pilgrimage down the across the board and go to Tijuana and Mexico and, you know, go up to LA, go down to San Diego and, you know, just try to visit some of the different places that were there and why I said North Carolina, I thought I knew the cold when I was stationed in North Carolina. We went up to cold weather training in a place called Bridgeport, California, up in the mountains. This is my first foray into snow, which I had never seen real snow before in my life. And I thought I had felt cold before, but this was, I'd never felt anything like this cold before. And this was, man, this was just crazy and it was just amazing and we spent like three weeks up there and did cold weather training before we came back down to Camp Pendleton and again before we went on our second deployment overseas we did what they call desert training and we went out to 29 Palms in the desert and some of the older guys was were telling me that you know you need to bring long johns and you know, your field jacket and, you know, warm clothes to dress. I was like, well, what do I need, you know, long johns and stuff like that for? And I'm going to the desert where it's going to be like a hundred and something degrees out there. So, you know, why did I need to have this stuff? So stupid me, I didn't bring it. I didn't listen to the older guys and I didn't bring it with me. And that's something I learned to regret because it gets very cold in the desert at night, which I didn't know. But if I would have listened to the older guys, I would have, I wouldn't have had to worry about that. But the older guys took care of you out there as long as, you know, you did that. And, they, you know, they saw that since I was new and I didn't know anything about that. So they took care of me and I, I was eventually was able to stay warm at night also. So <laughs> I learned my lesson from there. You learn your lesson, you know, you listen to the older guys that's been around when you're first in the military even though some of the things they tell you might be nonsense and they might be joking with you, but you kind of learn to listen to them a little. So, and um, that was about it in Camp Pendleton after the second. Well, our second tour, we second deployment, we went overseas. We went to the Philippines, did that, and we went to South Korea down there, and uh, I got reintroduced to even colder weather than I felt up in Bridgeport <laughs> and it was even colder there in Korea I was like geez I was like okay and I made up my mind then I said well I'm not staying anywhere that's going to be cold in my lifetime so <laughs> that was uh pretty good and so we came back from there and 
my enlistment was coming to an end and I was staying in, so I re-enlisted and I got restationed back at Paris Island in South Carolina out at uh, 3rd Battalion. And I was cooking there. I was a cook in 3rd Battalion and we were feeding anywhere in between 800 and 1,000 recruits a day. And um, that was a real experience. So, but um, it was real good. It was real nice. It was some learning experience and I made up my mind then that I finally found out that what I wanted to be and I wanted to be a cook because I enjoyed doing it. And so that's what I ended up taking up and that's what I was for the final seven years of my military career. And um, while I was at Paris Island, um, I met what I called my best friend at the time. His name was, uh, we were both corporals, E-4s at the time. His name was Travis Hedgepeth and um, his wife, Erin. And uh, she was a student down at Savannah State University in Savannah, Georgia, not too far from Paris Island. And um, so at that time I had, um, everybody thought I was a womanizer. So I don't know, I guess uh, it was, un I thought it was unjust because I just, you know, I just hadn't found the right woman that I wanted to be with. So, I mean, I never kept relationships long. And it just so happened that one night, well, we had planned for me and Aaron and Travis and the girl I was going out with at the time named Patricia and Aaron's best friend at the time, a girl named Stephanie and her boyfriend named Leroy. We were all supposed to go on a triple date. But the girl I was going out with, she upset me, so I wasn't going to go on a date. And... Um, Stephanie's boyfriend, Leroy, he got called on. He was in the Army. He got called into duty, so she wasn't going to go on a date. And some kind of way, Aaron and Travis ended up talking to us both and say, well, why don't you two go together? And I'm like, well, I never even met this girl. I never talked to her, never talked to her on the phone, never met her, never saw her. So I, didn't, I was like, I don't know about all of this. It's like, well, you know, you both just have, you already got the plan. So I was like, okay, if she agrees, then I'll go and whatever. And so we went to pick her up in Savannah and we were going to go out to dinner and then go to Hunter Army Airfield to go to the NCO club and go dancing. And she opens the door and I'm start, I'm stuck by this woman that's there, young lady that's there. And I was like, you know, she was just beautiful. And so me and Travis went into the front. We sat down, and I don't know what you girls go in the back and do at, you know, whenever you do what you do, but they went back there to the back. And I told Travis, I said, you know, one day I'm going to marry this girl, you know. And he liked to split his side gut laughing at me because, you know, for me, a relationship was like, if it lasted two months, <laughs> that was probably a good thing for me at the time. And he was like, you you know, this is my first time ever laying eyes on this lady. This is my first time ever even hearing her voice or anything. And I'm telling him that I'm going to marry this lady one day. And so he just thought that was the most hilarious thing in the world. Sometime throughout the night, he somehow told his wife, Erin, and we were all at the table, and Aaron tells Travis to take Stephanie out and, you know, go on the dance floor. And so they went, and Aaron tells me, she says, well, Travis told me what you said. He said, and I say, well, he told you what I said about what? He says, you said that you're going to marry Stephanie. I was like, oh, yeah, I am. And she looks at me like, only these women, only you women can give this look. I don't know what it was. She looks at me, and I knew she was serious. She says, if you hurt my friend, I am going to kill you. And for some reason, one of those looks that my mom used to give me is like, I knew she was serious, and I said, but Aaron, I said, I'm going to marry this woman one of these days. And I was like, 
you know, I didn't know because she was with a boyfriend and I just knew I was going to marry this woman for some reason. And um, so anyway, the night went on and I danced with her a little while and, you know, for a few dances, we stayed for a little while and I took her home, said goodnight and all of that. And somewhere in between the next year, Aaron got trans not Aaron, Travis got transferred to another duty station, but we met another, I met another couple named James and Gloria. And uh, so I start, we started all hanging out. We started, I started hanging out with them and some kind of way Gloria stayed in touch with Stephanie. They had gotten to be good friends and, you know, I would always tell her, you know, just tell her, I said, hey, whenever I was over to their house and they were talking. And um, just so happened, like a week after her birthday, she had called Gloria and um, Gloria told me that, you know, you know, well, when she got done with the conversation, she says, you know, um, Stephanie just had a birthday. And um, I was like, oh, yeah, I was like, well, that's good. You know, she's like, you know, she's she's broken up with her boyfriend. I was like, well, this is a good time to be telling me. I said, why you didn't tell me this while you were on the phone with her and I could have talked to her and I said, I could have took her out for her birthday. She was like, well, why don't you call her, ask her out, take her out. I said, no, you call her because she never gave me her phone number. So you call her and tell her you have somebody that you want to talk so that wants to talk to you. So she did and I got on the phone and I talked to her and we set up a date for the next Saturday to go out. So I took her out for her birthday, and we sat and introduced and everything. We went out and had a good time, had a good dinner, went out dancing again, had fun. And um, that was the beginning of our relationship. So I wanted to make sure that it was going to be just me and her. So, And I waited for about, and, you know, it was just like, just seemed like every you know, free moment that I had, I was thinking of her, and this was really before the real big invention of cell phones at the time, so, you know, everybody had beepers, but not everybody had cell phones, and, you know, we'd still have to go, and I'd still have to go to the phone booth and whatever to call her, and so, you know, it went on for about, and maybe about nine or 10 months. And I figured I was like, you know, this really is the girl that I really want to marry. So I stopped seeing all the other girls that I was seeing at the time. And, you know, and I was just devoted to her. And we just kept going on and on while I was still stationed at Paris Island. Before I left, about, say three or four months before I was getting ready to it was time for me to re-enlist again. And I had Gloria take her to the uh to the mall, to the jewelry store to see what, you know, tell her that, you know, James wanted to buy her engagement ring because James never did. So that was a plausible reason to get her to see what kind of engagement ring that she wanted and everything. So she didn't know she was going to pick out her own engagement ring. So she thought she was going to help Gloria pick out one. She was going to pick her own out, which she didn't know. So, and about a week after that, and I, you know, took her out to dinner, and and I asked her over dinner, um, would she become my wife? And she said yes. And I was like the happiest guy in the restaurant, and let out this big yell, and everybody in there is starting to look at me, and uh, <laughs> they were. Everybody was probably wondering what was going on, and I said, this lady over here just agreed to become my wife, and everybody in there started clapping and everything. That was, you know, probably the happiest moment of my life was it in my graduation. And um, so we, you know, we got married before I left because I had re-enlisted in before I left, and we got, I got stationed back at California again. This time I got stationed up at Mainside, up in headquarters, still cooking and everything and so I had a good time out there and um we had to do one final deployment overseas back to Japan again Okinawa Japan 
and uh, we did that for another six months. And when we got back, like maybe three, four months after we got back, and it was almost probably about another six months before it was time for me to re-enlist again, this war over in Desert Storm broke out, and I was like, I talked it over with her. She was like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, well, I, I think I want to go ahead and get out because I didn't want to really go to war even though I took that oath. I said, I don't want to go over there and have to kill anybody. So she was like, well, you have to make up your mind what you want to do. She says, um, if you get out, then we have to figure out what we're going to do. I was like, well, I said, we got a few months before, but I said, I think I'm going to go ahead and get on out. So you need to try to be figuring out what you want to do, where you want to stay and all that. I said, no, I don't want to stay out here in California. And I didn't want to go back to Miami. I didn't know a lot about Georgia, so I just let her decide. We ended up staying in Savannah, and uh, we had a nice little cozy house, you know, just big enough for us two at that time. And we were married, and, and uh, we had, uh, let's see, about, We've been married for about two and a half, almost three years. When she, at my, because I, growing up, I had never had a birthday party in my life, and I had always told her that. And for my 30th birthday, she was giving me a surprise party, you know, which was very awesome. So I, I always celebrated my birthday, but I never had a party. And this was the first party that I ever had. And she had me a surprise party, and that was great. And she announced to me at the party that she was pregnant with our first child, which, you know, now I'm happy again because this is my first child, and I'm ecstatic about it. And I announced it. We announced to everybody that was there at the party that she was pregnant with our first child, and that was just wonderful. And so the birth of our child came. I'm 30 years old now, and we got our we got little Jonathan, and we're great. But we know now we have to try to find a bigger place because we did have we did plan on having another child anyway. So, but we had to get a bigger place than what we had. You know, it was two bedrooms, but it was very small place, and uh, so we started looking around while Jonathan was growing up. You know getting a little bigger and we came across the house that we found that we stayed in there and uh, we moved into there. We got everything, you know, I got everything through my VA loan and got all that finance and everything and all that big headache and buying a house. And so we moved there like two and a half years after Jonathan was born and Jordan was born. And um, so now we got our family and everything's set and ready to go. We got our house and everything, and everything's working lovely and all that. And they're both growing and getting bigger and bigger and buying things. And she's not a out. Stephanie's not an outdoors person, other than you know going out to the car and then going to the mall and having her fun there and all that. But as far as going, you know, taking the kids to the park and everything like that and going to ball games and things like that. You know, that was, I'm not going to say my responsibility because I enjoyed doing it, taking them to do that, those types of things. So, you know, that that was what we did and had our time. But she would go, like, we would go on picnics out to the park. She would go to that and we would have cookouts at the house and, you know, things like that. She, you know, and we did our thing as a family and everything and, I don't know, somewhere along, you know, and I was still cooking. I got a, when I first got, when I first got out and we settled in Savannah and I got a job at the hospital and I was still cooking. And um, so, you know, I was still enjoying doing whatever I was doing. I did that. And like I said, you know, with the family and, you know, we were enjoying ourselves and having a good time and everything was going, going very well. And, Somewhere along the line when, I'd say probably when Jonathan was probably 10 or 11 and Jordan was eight or nine, something like that, somewhere around in there, some kind of way I 
started drinking a little heavy with the, you know, different people I had started hanging out with. And for some strange, you know, I started more and more, we became distant and I stopped doing, I stopped doing family things. She kept, she would be the one taking the boys to their games and all kinds of things like that and doing the things that I was doing and I was starting to make excuses not to do them and going out drinking with the guys and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, our marriage started falling apart and we had been been married for 10 years. We had been together for 13. And after 10, you know, finally she got fed up with it and she said that I had to make a choice. And to me, looking back, I made the wrong choice. At the time, I thought I was making the right choice. I was like, well, I said, I guess marriage wasn't for me after all. And so I got out there and started going back to the way I was when I was single. Although I was still married, we were just separated. And um, I just started going back doing the things that I was doing, you know. And plus, I was drinking heavy now, which I wasn't doing at that time. But I was drinking heavy and... Now I really was womanizing because I didn't really actually care about have hurting a woman's feelings at this time. Because, you know, the woman I thought I was going to be spending the rest of my life with just kicked me out. And at the time I thought, you know, I'm going to take everything, you know, because of her, I'm going to screw up, you know, every woman. I don't care, you know, if... if if it works or not, I, don't, I didn't really care. It didn't make a difference. I really didn't want it to work anyway, so it, that never even came into mind. So, but that um that went on for years and years, and like I said, the drinking got bad, and I couldn't hold down a steady job after so many years, and I ended up, you know, going to a shelter, and I did that for about. At this one particular shelter, I stayed for maybe probably about four or five months. I stayed there, and I didn't too much care for that. And someone told me about a better one. And it was better in a sense that you got, you know, at the first one, we were sleeping on little mats on the floor. And at least this one here, it had bunk beds. You were able to actually sleep in a bed. But still, you had all the rules and everything, and sleeping in like an open dormitory was like being back in boot camp again, so I didn't like that, and I didn't stay there long, so I started living, you know, found a place out with with some guys and was catching odds and end jobs and stayed out in the woods in a tent. I happened to come across a couple of old mattresses people were throwing away and got those and got them into my tent and everything, and at least I had mattresses to sleep on and Got blankets and sleeping bags and things like that and would go around to the different shelters and, and eat and, you know, go around to other churches and get food to be able, you know, we would, we had a a fire pit out there where we could cook and, you know, and do things like that and everything. So and somebody came up with an idea. I don't know who it was. I don't remember who it was, but some kind of way weeding up everybody that was right there in our little camp. We built a shower, you know, where you could get in there and take a shower so we wouldn't have to keep getting up and trying to beat the lines into these places to catch showers. So we had our own little shower right there and, you know, we had water coming in and for the first couple of months and, you know, it was cold water, but, you know, you were able to wash and, so we, we all got together and bought a generator, and we would all chip in and put gas. And so now we could at least have hot water or warm water anyway to be able to take a shower. We didn't have to take cold showers. And uh, so that went on and off, you know, on and on for a few years, staying out there in and out. And that got kind of old, and I was like, oh, I'm tired of living in the woods and, you know, just... I would just, I had found a couple of different other places to live in, you know, some buildings and 
some places it just was, you know, just to protect me from the weather and the rain and the wind and all that. And I didn't have to worry about, you know, then I would still have to get up and go to these places to take my shower. And, you know, we had to go there to wash clothes or just go there and get new clothes and throw the old ones away if you don't want to wash them or however you wanted to do it. And like I said, I lived like that for probably, I don't know, probably about maybe six or seven years living, you know, between the woods and then out and in and out of the streets until I, to this uh, past November in 2021, when, um, for whatever reason, I had, I fell out because I hadn't been drinking before. This was a Sunday that this happened, and I hadn't been drinking since that Saturday night was the last time I had a drink up until this day that we're on now. And uh, I passed out, and the guys, I started going into seizure. And um, so the story that I heard was that, you know, I didn't fall. I did, well, when I fell, I didn't bump my head. And when I had a seizure, they had a hold of my head. They had already called the ambulance because I just, you know, for whatever reason, I fell out, which nobody knows to this day why I did that. And um, so they would hold my head, and they say I didn't bump my head, and I had a seizure. And while I was in the hospital, this time while they were trying to figure it out, and um, I was just I had made up my mind because earlier that year I had already lost my mom; she passed, and one of the guys I consider one of my friends, since I had, you know, considered a couple of the guys that I was out on the streets with. And in the woods, a couple of them I had, you know, become closer to than some of my own blood brothers. And I considered them as my brothers. And we lost him like a month after my mom died. And um, so while I was in the hospital, you know, all of this didn't click in until I was in the hospital this time when I passed out in November. And um, I was like, I got to have a better life than this. And I didn't. You know, I didn't want to die out on the streets. So I decided right then, I was like, you know, I was in the hospital. I had taken my last drink that Saturday, and this was right before Thanksgiving coming up on my birthday. And um, I just decided then, I said, well, I said, I might need a little help. And while I was in the hospital, I talked to some of the nurses in there, and I talked to one of the caseworkers with the homeless authority down in Savannah. And um, they told me about, well, not about 180 place, but they told me, you know, about the VA up here in Charleston. I was like, well, you know, what kind of way, is it a way that I can get up there, you know, to take care of everything that I need to take care of? And they hooked that up, <coughs> excuse me, and, um, they got me up here to the VA, and the VA got me hooked up with the CRCC, and uh, they turned me in, turned me on to this place here, and brought me here to 180 place, and I've been here since December 9th of 2021, and um, this place is really great. This is like the best shelter that I have been in that I've ever been in. These these people here, they really, really, I believe they really care about what they're doing and trying to help you get yourself back together and get you out there and get you a place to stay. And I don't believe anybody is here just because it's a paycheck that they're collecting. And I think they truly, really, truly believe that, you know, if you want help, they'll help you get help. And I appreciate everybody that I've come in contact with. They've been very helpful to me and I'm getting everything I need done through the VA. Everything's starting to fall in place for me here. I've started getting my SNAP benefits. I'm working on getting, you know, some of my disability and maybe my non-combative veteran insurance and all of that and they have all of that working for me I had interviews set up for that and like I say you know everybody here has been 
you know, just terrific to work with as far as I'm concerned anyway. So I haven't had any bad experiences here. I mean, even the food here, the ladies in there, they do a terrific job in preparing meals. And so this is, you know, this is like the best place that I've ever come and I'm thoroughly enjoying myself and I'm meeting new people and it's just wonderful here. And that's about it. <laughs> What's your relationship like with your family now? Um, With my oldest son, it's... uh. It's a little bit more rocky than with my youngest son. It's um, <clears throat> I asked him, but I told him both. I was like, "Well, I'm not looking for forgiveness because what I did wasn't right, and I, you know, I chose something over you two that I said that I would never do to my children because I didn't have a, a dad in my life within the years that I really needed them, and they didn't have one in their life when they really needed them. So." I said, I'm not asking you for forgiveness. I'm just asking you to understand. And I think my youngest son, he understands a little bit. Well, he chose to understand a little bit more than my oldest one. My oldest one, my oldest son, still a little rocky with him. But I'm hoping that eventually he might overcome and, you know, just see and just. Like I said, I'm not asking any of them for forgiveness, either them or my ex-wife. You know, and um, I'm just 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 want them to understand what I was going. You know, I I chose something over them that I should not have. I let that it it just started controlling me instead of me controlling it. You know, and I now I understand what alcoholics and drug dependency and everything like that does. You know how how that ruins people. You know and. I got to see firsthand, you know, with my friend, how it ruined him, you know, and some others, you know, that I I wouldn't consider them friends, but I saw a lot of people being out there homeless. I saw people, you know, with their lives, you know, they ended their lives out there on the street and nobody was there for them. And I don't want that, you know, at least I want, you know, to be able to you know, have someone there that's for me, you know, to be able to, you know, to at least, you know, if they don't want to bury me, cremate me or something, but somebody there that can, you know, just that I'm not in a, like they would do back in the olden days, just being an unmarked grave or, or whatever. I don't know what the people do to you when you die and nobody claims you. So I just want <clears throat> to have someone to be able to claim me and, you know, and be able to, you know, maybe my soul rest in peace and someday maybe both my kids, they'll come to an understanding. And like I say, I don't, I'm not looking for forgiveness. Just I just want them to understand that, you know, I let something get control of me that I should not have. And it, you know, it messed up a very good thing with a, a woman that, that I truly love, you know, and I still care for her to this day. And, you know, so, and she knows that. I've told her that before. And so I just, you know, I have anything bad to say about her. Like a lot of guys, I know they was like, man, they started calling their women all these different kinds of names and all that. I I have anything bad to say about her because she raised our two kids practically on her own. You know, especially when it's time that they needed a man in their life and they didn't have that. So, you know, and I was, I'm grateful to her for that. So, I don't have anything bad to say about her. She's um, she's a terrific woman. And I wish her all the happiness, anything, whatever could make her happy, I wish it for her because she deserves it. I believe she deserves it. So... Can you tell us a little bit more about your dad and what happened with him? Well, he was a great guy, and um, you know, and I had just started getting a a real relationship with him, you know, and you know, and it was taken away from me with that guy. Like I said, I was very angry at the time, and 
I, I wanted this guy dead very much. And um, the years passed while I was, you know, in the military and I had come to grips with it between by talking to people and, you know, kind of, again, not understanding why he did what he did because he should have, you know, he had time to take a different route to it. He's the one that messed up. And so, you know, I had come to terms with it, and I thought I was going to be overjoyed when I finally found out that he ended up getting killed, you know, electrocuted. At the time, Florida had electrocution. You know, you know that was your, your, your death penalty, which is what he received from killing my dad. And um, when my mom called me and told me, she went to the execution, which surprised me because I didn't think she would, but she did. And uh, when she called me and told me, it was like, you know, I had, because I knew when the date was coming up and she told me and she was very happy and I had already planned. I thought I was going to have a party, you know, when she called me and told me that he was dead. And, you know, I just looked at it like it didn't matter because it wasn't going to bring my dad back. And, you know, so it was, I didn't feel one way or another because my dad was still gone and, you know, I wasn't happy or sad that that guy was gone. It was just, you know, it was another life gone that shouldn't have been, I don't think. You know, they, I don't think either one of them should have been gone at the time, but, you know, things happen in life that, you know, you don't have control over and that's what happened, but I didn't feel one way or another. And I was surprised my mom felt that way because, like I said earlier, she was very much a religious person, and I didn't think she'd ever feel, you know, but she was very joyous that he had got killed. <laughs> you know, that, so I, you know, that surprised me, you know, that she, you know, I thought we would have felt the opposite ways. I thought I was going to be the one that was going to be joyous, and <clears throat> she probably was going to be the one that, maybe been sad or anything because of the way she felt religiously and so but you know it was the opposite and I didn't feel any kind of way and she felt joyous so that was kind of strange but like I say it didn't bring my dad back so I had come to terms with it and I wish I could have gotten to know him as a man and gotten to know him a little better than what I got to know him but I still had the memories of the times that we did have, you know, when I was a young teenager growing up. So <clears throat> I always look at that as a positive and try to re remember those good times that I had with him. So what do you hope will happen when other people hear your story? I hope that it inspires somebody that might be going through some of the same things I'm going through or some things that are similar to what I've gone through. And I hope it inspires them to, you know, to get out there and, you know, find some place. If they don't find 180 place, find somewhere and, you know, and, and get the help. Because I, I know there has to be more places out there than just 180 place that, that's doing what they're doing. And um, just get out there and, and, and try to find somewhere and get those people, man, and, and get the help get the help that you, you know, and, and I know in my case, I had people telling me probably for about the past maybe six years now, five, six years, and I've had many people, including my ex-wife, my mom, my sister, my sons, and they've been telling me, it's like, when are you gonna get yourself together? You know, you know, you know how long are you gonna? You don't have to be out here. You can, you can get yourself together and and do the right thing. I was like, that alcohol just had me, and I just want somebody. You know, there's more to, to living than just waking up every morning wondering where you're gonna get your next drink from. <laughs> Or whatever addiction you're, 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 you know, has got you out here. Whatever addiction it is for you. For me, it was alcohol, and <clears throat> it took me, and it took me losing my mom and losing a good friend of mine. It took me losing them and me passing out 
for no apparent reason because nobody can, none of the physicians can tell me what's wrong. Why, how come I just happened to pass out that day? But I looked at it and it was a sign and I'm getting better. And so I, I hope that, you know, someone hears my story and some of it reflects on them. They take from it and they get out there and they get the help that they need, like I did, like I'm doing. You know, get out there and get that help. There's people out there that want to help you. And I knew that, but I didn't care. And I, you know, finally, you know, there's going to come a point in everybody's life where something's going to happen to you in your life and you're going to be like, what I'm doing is not working. You know, what I was doing wasn't working. And it took me falling out, passing out that day. You know, everything happens for a reason that I've come to accept. So there's a reason that I'm still here. And I always look at it and I say, well, God's not ready for me yet. You know, so he's giving me another chance. Well, he's giving me more than one, but he gave me this chance here and I'm going to take advantage of it. So I decided I'm going to take advantage of this chance and I want to get myself together. Get myself back together, you know, where I should be, you know, and, and get out there and do my thing. And if I can help somebody, then I will, you know. So and that's what I want my story to do. Help somebody. If it can help somebody, I hope it does.